This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Galton Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America and all around the world. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Dr. Jean-Gael Colum, Executive Director of the Wildlife Conservation Network, who says people call him G.J., so that's what we'll do. Dr. G.J. Is, has always been passionate about animals. He serves as the Executive Director of the Wildlife Conservation Network, an organization that invests in the best ideas to save endangered wildlife, providing long-term, in-depth support to local conservation organizations through its network, as well as project support through its wildlife funds that are aimed at saving wildlife across the species range. With over two decades of experience in wildlife conservation, GJ's specialty is the interface between wildlife conservation and development. Originally from Paris, France, G.J. started his career working in Lopé National Park in Gabon at an ecological research station that was focused on chimps, gorillas, mandrels, and other wildlife. Over the past 20 years, he has been involved with nonprofit organizations addressing issues at the interface between wildlife conservation and development. At the World Resources Institute, he developed the Central African branch of Global Forest Watch, an NGO network pairing field-based information with remote sensing data to monitor logging companies. G.J. has a Ph.D. in interdisciplinary ecology from the University of Florida with a concentration in tropical conservation development. So the Wildlife Foundation was founded by Akiko Yamazaki, John Lucas, and Charles Knowles. Uh, so... Welcome, G.J., and uh, tell us about those people. Who are they and what prompted their formation of it? Great. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, John. Um, it's, a, it's an honor to be, uh, to be on, on the podcast and to have the opportunity to share uh, all about uh -huh. the, uh, the work of the Wildlife Conservation Network and all the field conservationists that we're privileged to support. The Wildlife Conservation Network uh, was founded by Akiko Yamazaki, John Lucas, and Charles Knowles, indeed. And we started in 2002. Akiko and Charlie are Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, and, and John is a, a lifelong conservationist, and he's got mm -hmm. multiple leadership roles within a number of, of conservation organizations. And, and really what, what prompted their desire to, to start the Wildlife Conservation Network was a desire to do more for, for wildlife and a desire to do more for communities around the world and for the people who are trying to ensure that wildlife and people can coexist and thrive. Uh, they were seeing wildlife disappearing at, a, at an alarming rate. Uh, they saw a, a big opportunity to merge really wildlife philanthropy and wildlife conservation, trying to infuse it with, um, with a spirit of, of innovation, efficiency, and, and transparency. John Lucas joined from the start uh, with a shared objective to try to apply their conservation experience from John's side with business acumen and the entrepreneurial know-how that Charlie and Akiko were bringing from the Silicon Valley side to try to support these uh, small-scale conservationists who had really big potential and at the same time to help donors support these conservationists in a really efficient and effective way. So that's what prompted the formation of WCN in 2002. So how does it go about doing its work? 
Our mission is to protect um, endangered wildlife by supporting conservationists to ensure wildlife and people can coexist and thrive. And, and um, to do so, we try to make sure that, that conservationists have the resources they need to succeed. That's the funding, having fiscal sponsorship, uh, providing some capacity building, uh, providing opportunities for people to network with each other. We bring conservationists and supporters together. That's a big part of our work is to be that interface, that platform, and as frictionless as, as can be between conservationists and supporters. So we do so through something called the, the Wildlife Conservation Expo. We tell stories on our website. We do webinars, especially now that we uh, have learned to do a lot more of those under COVID. And we really try to provide direct access for donors. It's really hard when you're in the middle of Mozambique or in the middle of, of Colombia to know who are those individuals who care about wildlife and who want to support it. And likewise, when you're here, it's really difficult to know who are the great conservationists working in the four corners of the world. Uh, furthermore, we try to act as a, as a philanthropic advisor to these donors so that we can really help them identify and vet uh, proper uh, conservation initiatives. And, um, and we try to act as a neutral convener, bringing people together. The, the network part of our name is a, is, is, is a real part of our identity. So what's your annual budget? So um, we have been growing fast, expanding our, our impact through, uh, uh, through the funds that we raise. On average, we've grown about 25 to 30 percent over the past three years. Last year, uh, our budget was uh, a bit over $40 million. Uh, over the coming uh, three years, we, we have uh, ambitious goals to raise and deploy $150 million over the next three years, and 90% of the money that we deploy goes to conservation programs. So it's really important for us to make sure that uh, the money goes out to the folks who need it most in the field. And are the sources of funds uh, just private contributions or foundations, or where does it come from? So the bulk of the funding comes from, um, from individual uh, donors, uh, primarily here in the United States. Uh, and it's, uh, it represents the majority of our, of our funding. Uh, people like you and I and others who just really care about wildlife conservation and trying to ensure that people and wildlife can coexist uh, and want to, um, want to support it. Mm -hmm. And um, we also get some, some support from, from foundations, and we've been blessed also with very generous support over the years from a handful of corporations, ah. uh, like of which uh, like like Tiffany, um, the Disney Company, and various others have been able to support our work. Uh, but really, the, the 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 base of our funding comes in from individual donors uh, who who want to support this kind of work. And how many countries uh, do you work in, and uh, how many organizations are you involved with? So we have a, a truly global reach. We work in um, about 80 countries um, around the world, and uh, we work with uh, probably over 100 and around 175 different organizations, but in different ways. Uh, at our core, we've got a we've got a, a network of, a, of 17 core organizational partners. These are. Um, conservation organizations throughout the world that we've been uh, having deep relationships with for several years. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have 17 of those core partners, and we're looking to grow that over the next several years. Uh, we're also very generous with our approach. So we, we have other relationships uh, that are more ad hoc 
with probably another 20 to 25 uh, conservation organizations. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily filter through us, but we might know of an organization that does great work, and we're happy to put them in touch with donors. Then we've got um, something called our wildlife funds, and I can talk a little bit about our strategies in a second, but through the wildlife funds, we, we uh, support projects uh, so that are more kind of time-bound, uh, and through that, we've uh, supported about 175 different uh, grantee organizations. Uh, on your website, you mentioned financial efficiency. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so a big part of our, of our model um, is to, to guarantee that 100% of uh, donations that are designated for specific species or programs will go directly to those partners in the field. And uh, we can do that because of visionary donors who help support WCM's operating costs and because we try to always keep these costs uh, very, very lean. Uh, but, but, um, but if people want to make a donations to support uh, work protecting uh, cotton-top tamarins in Colombia or protecting uh, elephants, we'll make sure that 100% of that donations, whether it's $10 or $100,000, uh, goes out to those programs in the field. And uh, we, we raise our additional funds, as I said, from, uh, from donors who support WCN itself. Uh, of all the donations made to WCN, uh, we use about 94% of, of these funds to support our conservation programs, whether uh, by issuing grants to field partners, by doing some of the work ourselves, and, and supporting these conservation partners. We, uh, we really try to keep bureaucracy to, to minimal. Uh, we try to, uh, to have very careful and strategic uh, vetting of our partners and, uh, and try to keep the paperwork as, uh, as streamlined as possible. And I think your rating from Cherry, Cherry Navigator is exceptional. It is. We've got uh, a four-star rating, uh, a, a near-perfect score. I think it's the highest on Charity Navigator for wildlife conservation organizations. Mm. We're very proud of it. Um, at the end of the day, uh, what we're really most proud of is, is the impact of the conservationists on the ground. So it's all the work that people do uh, engaging communities uh, and protecting wildlife throughout the world, uh, that's really what we're most proud of. So you held a virtual expo in early October. Uh, would you tell us about that and how it, how it went? Yeah, so the, the, the expo has been a, a mainstay of WCN, and it really serves as this great platform to um, bring to life the extraordinary work of these uh, field conservation organizations. Um, people aren't going to care uh, about things that they don't know about. So a big part of what we do is really uh, help amplify the voices of field conservationists throughout the world and bring their stories uh, to people who, who want to hear them. And sometimes you don't always know what you want to hear. You might be uh, fascinated by lions and uh, you really want to hear about lion conservation, but you come to an expo and you discover that uh, there's a, another cool species called... Um, painted dogs, or maybe a, something entirely different, uh, like pangolins or cotton-top tamarins I've mentioned, or saula, uh, or saiga antelopes, or, um, uh, or macaws. And, uh, and you might come in for a particular species, fall in love with another, and start supporting those conservationists. And so the expo really serves as this opportunity to bring people together. And, um, and uh, the, the past few years, we've been doing... Uh, these uh, virtual online. It's really been a new opportunity for us to 
engage with more people. We've had over 2,300 attendees, so that's 2,300 people who, from 70 different countries who've been able to join us and, and learn about the extraordinary work of all the conservationists, uh, ranging from uh, people logging in in Germany, Singapore, Ecuador, obviously here in the United States is the bulk of them, but really since we've gone virtual, we've been able to reach people throughout the world. It's also given us an opportunity to kind of peer into the daily lives of conservationists. It's one thing when we used to do these in person, if you have people on stage, that's great. It's another also now that we can really kind of be in a Zoom call and see people in their field camps and get to know what it takes to work hand-in-hand with communities to save wildlife. In the past, we've had wonderful appearances and, and remarks by, by Dr. Jane Goodall, which has been fantastic. She's given kind of solo remarks. She's been interviewed by some of our partners, and it's always a, a wonderful inspiration to hear from her and to see her inspire the, the next generation. Uh, recently, we've been able to use the expo to unveil our newest project, the California Wildlife Program, which is our our first effort to be working here uh, in North America, because up until that point, we've been working primarily internationally. In addition to our core programs, we also feature guest speakers. So we've had people come and talk about uh, tigers or gray crowned cranes or hello antelopes, bats, sea turtles, uh, a number of species that we uh, are, think are, are really worth supporting, but don't necessarily have long-term partnerships with uh, at this point in time yet. So do you do that every October? Yes, yeah, so we, we, we have two a year. One is the second weekend of October, and one is usually at the end of April. So the next one is it's coming up April 23rd. Uh, I encourage people to go to our website to check it out. So you could go to uh, wildnet.org or even wcnexpo.org and see the schedule, register for it. We're going to talk about uh, painted dogs, mountain gorillas, cheetah, macaws, dolphins, lions, Indian cats, and other small cats. It's going to be... It's going to be a great day for anybody who's passionate about wildlife conservation. It is a, an awesome place to be. You, on your website, you mentioned global network. What's the global network? So we have a global network because we really operate through, through three strategies. And these strategies are that we, we want to invest in organizations, we invest in projects, and we invest in, in individual conservationists. We invest in organizations through our partner network, and that's a select cohort of field-based conservationists who focus on community-based conservation, and we offer them uh, ongoing, in-depth, kind of multi-year support, providing them with the financial resources, the tools, and the services that they need to effectively protect wildlife. In addition, I I mentioned that we have wildlife funds, and that's really an investment in in projects. And we establish those wildlife funds when we see a need and an opportunity to protect threatened wildlife across a much larger landscape rather than being site-based as many of our partners are. And by providing that specific kind of short-term funding to projects from institutions big and small, uh, we really harness the power of multiple organizations working to save species throughout their entire habitats because it takes true collaboration across multiple organizations to, to get the job done. And the wildlife funds enable us to do that. And finally, we invest in individual conservationists by providing scholarships and grants to uh, early career and sometimes mid-career professionals from local nationals, because ultimately, the sustainable, successful conservation is going to come by investing in local nationals. And so this is an important pillar of our strategy. And this forms a true global network where people all around the world, they are able to be connected to each other. At the expo, when they come, 
On the side of the expo, we organize training workshops where all these conservationists can learn from each other. Uh, there's nothing better than a conservationist from Zimbabwe uh, sharing their experiences with a conservationist from Colombia or Argentina or Vietnam, and they realize that they, they share some of the same struggle and they can learn from each other, and that's tremendously useful. What are conservation entrepreneurs? Well, these conservation entrepreneurs, they really form the basis of our partner network, as I mentioned. They're on-the-ground conservationists who operate really on the front lines and have the nimbleness and, and the, the know-how to make conservation work. I mean, it's one thing for us to be sitting here and have a, an understanding of what it might take to make conservation work. It's another to just be on the very tip of that sphere and to be working in those sites with communities day-to-day with the government agencies, with the wildlife, uh, and that requires a certain flexibility. So at WCN, we act a bit like a venture capitalist and an incubator. We identify and then we support these, these people and these organizations and projects that really hold the greatest promise for wildlife. We offer them kind of this ongoing multi-year support, and we offer kind of personal attention that they need to really get their project to the next level. These conservation entrepreneurs understand how dynamic the situations are. They're the first responders when there's an issue. Uh, they operate in very remote parts of the world. Uh, sometimes government agencies aren't necessarily all the way out there. So having this community-based approach to understand the needs of the communities, to respond to it, to work with the communities hand-in-hand, to develop long-term solutions so that people and wildlife can coexist and thrive is really key. You have a number of projects going on, uh, one of which I guess the best funded is the Lion Recovery Fund. Can you talk about that? Sure. So the, the Lion Recovery Fund is one of our wildlife funds. It's operational in about uh, 23 countries. It's supported 177 projects to date. And it came about because lion populations have declined by half in, in just the past quarter century. And so the loss of lion really signals the loss of wilderness in Africa. It's an apex predator. It's helpful for these ecosystems. And so it's something that's, that's very worrisome. But lions can, can return. And so we've been uh, actively working with, uh, with a number of conservation organizations to really bolster uh, their efforts uh, within Africa's national parks and reserves, as well as uh, outside of those areas, within areas that are managed by communities. Um, and we hope that we could um, uh, support three to four times the number of lions that we currently have today. I think that's within, within our grasp. Um, and we've been working to recover lions, restore their landscape, uh, trying to look at uh, who are the best actors with the best ideas, whether it's a, a large uh, NGO, um, one of our partners is uh, African, African Parks or uh, Frankfurt Zoological Society, or, or smaller organizations uh, that, that people may not have heard of. And, uh, and there are all kinds of organizations that are worthy of support. And through the Lion Recovery Fund, we help um, connect donors who really care about lions, uh, invest in, in all these different varieties of organizations and projects. So uh, you have you, you, a number of species that you uh, have particular projects for. Uh, one of them is that you mentioned is the Rhino Recovery Fund. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Rhino Recovery Fund is, is, again, one of our wildlife funds, like the, the Lion Recovery Fund. It operates with that same principle of trying to safeguard rhinos and their landscapes across the entire 
um, entire range and across all the species of, of rhinos. It is um, uh, more recent, so it, it, it doesn't have the same uh, reach yet, but its impact has, has been uh, very large and significant to date. Uh, it's operating in about 10 countries. It's got 23 partners. Uh, and we've had a number of uh, really fascinating projects across both Africa and Asia, uh, as well as some uh, Africa-wide project. Uh, if we look in, um, in India, we've been able to, uh, to work with uh, an organization called uh, Aranyak to protect the greater one-horned rhinos, as well as their habitat in, the, in a region called Assam. Uh, if we switch, shift over to uh, to Zimbabwe, for instance, we've been able to uh, to work with a number of uh, organizations there, the Bihani Trust or Flying for Wildlife or Frankfurt Zoological Society, for some uh, extraordinary uh, reintroduction work happening in uh, in Ghana Rijou for black rhinos, uh, for various kinds of uh, monitoring of, of uh, rhino populations, and uh, and it's been fascinating to to see the the uptake and and. We hope that we can change our paradigm uh, to uh, to make sure that that people and 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 rhino can can coexist as they really should be. So, uh, are rhino populations uh, maintaining their their uh, their equilibrium, or uh, are they increasing or decreasing? So, at this point, for a large part, we're seeing some quite positive trends. Um, we have some really exciting news that just happened. The Sumatran rhino had just a young baby was born and was reported in Manga Bay, which is fantastic. A lot of the rhinos in, in Africa seems to be doing better, but we, we can't take our, our foot off the gas, and we've got to continue protecting the, the, both the black rhinos and the white rhinos. Um, and the, the Asian rhinos are in, in very small numbers, and uh, there's some very strong need for attention there, too. What about pangolins? Uh, you have a project on the pangolin crisis. Yeah, so there are eight species of pangolins, and pangolins, unfortunately, are, are the most trafficked mammal in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, many people do not know about pangolins, so I think people who do know about them are extremely passionate about them, and, um, and we, we've got to do something to reverse the decline and the threats to a species primarily driven by trade. There are a number of projects that are geared at trying to understand where pangolins are, what we can do to protect them in the wild, and what we can do to reduce the demand for pangolin products. It's a species that is really endearing. We need to get more people to know about them and to protect them. How do you, how do you interfere with the illegal trade in species like pangolins? So it takes a lot of a lot of grit, a lot of dedication by a number of uh, dedicated partners. Sometimes slightly outside of a typical realm of organization of conservation organizations that you that you think of, and it's really challenging. It's multiple prongs to really disrupt the trafficking networks and provide alternatives for the people who are on the front end of the poaching, who most of the time would much rather do something else. So we've got to work with them to make sure that they've got other alternatives that are going to be more lucrative and also much less risky. So we also have to work a lot with judicial systems to increase the risks of uh, participating in various kinds of, of wildlife crime. And that takes coordinated efforts across a number of national legislation as well as international cooperation uh, to make sure that when particular uh, nefarious actors are, are caught, they are properly prosecuted, and, uh, and severe sentences are, are handed down. 
but it's really best to try to target those at the higher echelons of those criminal ranks. It's dangerous work, and it's going to take time for it to happen, but hopefully uh, we've had some successes, and people are realizing that engaging in wildlife trafficking of both live and dead animals is not good business. It often also has tremendous human toll, and there are much better ways for us to to care about one another. And I think that's an important realization. And I'm really thankful for the, for the dedication and the risks that a lot of people take in this line of work. You're engaged in a penguin conservation project in Argentina and New Zealand. Tell us about that. So the Global Penguin Society is one of our 17 core partners. And it's a, it's a wonderful project. There are actually 18 different penguin species concentrated in the, in the southern hemisphere, a little bit o- over half of which are listed as, as threatened. Most penguin populations are, are at risk from changes in our oceans, primarily due to pollution, to fisheries mismanagement, and the effects of climate change. So the Global Penguin Society, which itself is based in, in Argentina, uh, supports projects all over the world, and they're promoting penguin conservation and advocating for solutions to uh, sustainable, healthy activities in the ocean. They work with penguin researchers and conservationists to implement a united conservation front for these charismatic, sightless uh, birds. The Global Penguin Society promoted the creation of the first ever IUCN penguin specialist group dedicated to the conservation of all 18 species of penguins. They focused on habitat restoration, scientific research, expanding education, and, and guiding policies in various of these countries. And it's been extraordinary. One of their proudest success has been um, the protection of about 32 million acres of marine and and coastal protected areas. They've had uh, 6,000 kids visiting penguin colonies through their educational program. It's been wonderful to see them thrive. In 2015, actually, they spearheaded the creation of the UNESCO Biosphere Reserve Blue Patagonia, which is the, the largest of its kind in Argentina, around 8 million acres, which is about the size of Belgium. Mm. and has the highest biodiversity in, in Argentina. It protects 20 penguin colonies and 700 marine and terrestrial species. So the work that we do and that our partners do around one species or one set of species often has cascading effects for many other species, the functioning ecosystems, and in many places also the, the human communities that share that landscape. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you quickly about internships. Who do you find and what do they do on internships? So internships are uh, very different levels of internships. Many of our partners or several of our of our field partners run their own internship programs uh, where they'll take in uh, people who are interested in doing some work in this space. Increasingly, there's a focus really to foster internships for local nationals, so, you know, people from Colombia doing internships with our Colombian partners, and our Colombian partners vet those incoming candidates. It's a great opportunity for folks to have a taste of that experience and start to build their resume and to move on into this space. Occasionally, we get a lot of requests from people from the United States who want to intern abroad, and that is extremely difficult. It happens. It is not necessarily the norm anymore. It, It used to happen a lot more. But more and more, we're seeing a, a strong opportunities for local nationals to jump into these internship opportunities, organized and vetted by our local partners. And I, I think that's really the, the way of the future. And there's other opportunities, I think, for people to intern with a number of different organizations. So for anybody here in the United States, 
who wants to get into this space, I encourage them to look within their own local national organizations or, or regional organizations and see what they can do and how they can get engaged. It's really important, I think, for our young people to care about our planet. Internships are a great way to, um, to get a taste of what that career is like and to decide what people like, what they don't like, and how they can apply their skills. Well, G.J., we're out of time, but uh, your website, people who want to get more information, is WCN.org. Is that right? That is not correct, actually. So um, for anybody who wants to get more information, I encourage them to visit our website, which is uh, www.wildnet.org. That's W-I-L-D-N-E-T, wildnet.org. And, yes, there's a lot of information there. You can learn all about our different strategies, working with partners around the world, and learn all about the Expo, as I said, that's coming up April 23rd, and people can register and attend it. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jay. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. So uh, maybe we'll do it again. Great. Right. Thank you so much, Jay. Our guest today has been uh, G.J. Colum, Executive Director of Wildlife Conservation Network. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.